Hello and welcome everyone to Adaptivist Live, Team Titans. This is a show about people with unique perspectives on work itself, leading teams, building software, and defining, and maybe sometimes destroying processes. This show is published between episodes of the Atlassian Ecosystem podcast, so if you're here listening for news and updates about Atlassian tools, well, next week, we got you. I'm your host, Brian Spilkin, and on this edition of Team Titans, I am super pleased to welcome my friend and adaptivist senior digital transformation consultant, John Turley. John, welcome to Team Titans. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for the invitation. Super excited to be here. A pleasure to see you as always. And um, to a note to our listeners, the next episode will not feature a gentleman named John. <laughs> so, John... I know your story, right? But our listeners, they have no idea. So tell us right. how you came to, to work on the people and culture piece of digital transformation. Okay, that's a good, good question. So my uh, career in IT is about 30 years old. And for most of that time, I have been a project and a program manager or leading PMOs or really anything to do with sort of change from, you know, running change programs. Um, and over that period, I increasingly noticed that what we were trying to do didn't work. I noticed also that the things I started to focus on that seemed to lead to much more successful outcomes were less and less and less about sort of the governance and, and even how you managed your risks and that kind of thing, and more and more and more about the people. I started to learn about um, uh, social networks and about developmental psychology to really um, just answer questions I had about how, um, about how that social network stuff was really working, I guess. So it was just me seeking answers that didn't seem to be provided by the thinking in the status quo. The social networks are, are an interesting concept, uh, something that we're... we're with everyone currently experiencing sort of a work from home renaissance, as it were, <laughs> I think that's putting it generously. Um, this, our social networks are becoming more and more important to our normal lives, right? If it weren't for the people that we can reach out to. Whew. So you raise a couple of super interesting points. Um, uh, one is that um, there's a lot of a lot of evidence, a lot of research into the very strong connection between people's well-being, just the degree to which people are thriving, and their connection that they have with other human beings. Not in a uh, not in a sort of transactional sense, right? Not all human interaction uh, sort of satisfies this need for connectedness, but for what I call uh, authentic dialogue, right? Um, authentic in that it is um, dialogue about the things that you really care about, not the things that you maybe feel you have to say you care about. Sometimes there's a difference. Um, and, and a dialogue in that, uh, as opposed to just explaining your own point of view from the benefit of, for the benefit of somebody else, a dialogue is really about exploring what multiple people in the dialogue think and how they feel. And that, that makes for an authentic connection with other human beings that supports our well-being. So there is sort of a deep concern that as we all become remote workers, that, um, that those connections will suffer and that that will have um, a negative impact on people's well-being. But certainly there, there have to be some ways to combat that trend, 
right? There's there have to be positive steps that we can take to ensure that our well being stays up. Yeah, there are, and um, I guess you get straight to. I'm, I'm thinking there that you've got straight to the heart of uh, what it is that, that I try and deal in, and I help companies do, which is to change the way they function by changing the conversation. Okay. And in changing the conversation, we can have a number of impacts on the organization. The first and most important one is that people thrive, or people, um, their well-being increases. Um, but as well-being increases, their performance as teammates, as collaborators also starts to improve. Um, and then team performance and company performance, happier customers, greater profit. You know, there's, there's a strong connection between the two. Um, the first one for me is well-being, though, but we're going to change the conversation. And there are a couple of um, sort of what um, uh, a friend of mine recently referred to as cognitive tricks that you can uh, engage in. It's one of, one of them is to be aware that there, that there is a category of conversation that is sort of sanctioned by the status quo right? Sanctioned by um, the, the social network, if, if you like. And that when you're entering into conversations um, that are sanctioned, um, that are sort of part of the official ideology, you're in very safe territory, right? You know that you're not going to say anything controversial because um, it's already been said before. There's kind of nothing new. It's all okay. Maybe you know it's okay because the senior person in the room has already said it. So you can agree, safe in the knowledge that you're probably not going to be contradicted. And if you are, not in a bad way because the most senior person in the room has already said it. There's also um, a kind of shadow ideology, right? There is the conversations that um, you can have with trusted colleagues in a meeting room or in the corridor or in the, in the pub after work. And in and, and those shadow conversations and the official conversations are often very different, right? Now, if what you want to do is change the way an organization is really working, by changing the conversation, then you have to shift things from the shadow ideology into the official ideology. And the important thing to recognize there is that not everybody can do that. It depends on how much political and social capital you have in the group in which you're functioning at the time, right? So if you have enough social capital, you can shift something in the group that you're in. You can shift something from the shadow ideology into the official ideology, and then it's out there. Right. I guess we could say that, you, you know, you, you're naming the elephant in the rooms when you're doing that. However, do be cautious, because if you try it where you don't have enough sufficient, you don't have sufficient capital, you're liable to get into sticky situations. In that case, what you need to do is talk to people who you perceive to have enough social capital in those private one-on-one -on -one conversations, encourage them to move it into the official ideology, and then people start to talk about the things that everybody knew were going on, but nobody dared really talk about out in the open, right? And once you can start to talk about those things in an authentic dialogue, then, then things start to change. John, I wish I would have known that um, in my youth. Because I worked at a at a at a, a local at a small um, independently owned grocery store when I was a kid, and uh, or not a kid, I was a young adult, and uh, you know, but so I worked there for about three days before a big meeting, and I had observed some some behaviors in the ordering system that I thought were just insane, right? 
But at this big all-hands meeting, I, three days into the job, go, can we fix this? And the looks I got in that meeting, oh my God. Because <laughs> I said the shadow ideology from nowhere in the official one, and uh, it was just like, you know that record scratch moment? When yeah. in, in shows where a record scratches and everybody focuses on one thing and the narrator comes on and said, I really screwed up. Well, John, I really screwed up. Me too. I think this is probably how I learn. Um, it isn't the, the rightness of our arguments that gets people to listen, right? It, it's, it's our perceived social status in that conversation. And yeah, I wish I'd known that. I've uh, been on the wrong side of it more time than you can imagine. <laughs> so changing the conversation, it's really, that's just another way of saying transforming things. And that's a, a term that's just flying around right now. What is going to drive an employee to get involved with this transformation? What are they going to get out of it besides, you know, following the company line? So you're right. The, the digital transformation and transformation are words that are thrown around a great deal without much clear meaning on it right um what i mean by the word when i use it is is kind of in in the sense that we would have used it um uh, prior to be it becoming in vogue right that is sort of some sort of fundamental change right so a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly that kind of thing right so that kind of transformation in um in in a human being is a is a change in the way they make their meaning in the world it's it's an um, an increase in the complexity that they're able to understand is going on around them and thus interact with right and the reason this developmental journey this path of growth for individuals as well as organizations which is what transformation is to me is important is because we start to unlock some mysteries in life really that sounds a bit grand. Um, once we start to be able to unlock um, the later stages of psychological development, um, there's a strong correlation, again, a lot of research um, between well-being and later stages of psychological development. So most human beings, I think it's universally true, actually, but that might be a bit controversial. Not only do they want to feel the connectedness that we talked about earlier on, they want to feel that in whatever domain they're performing, um, they are um, competent and they want to feel like they have an opportunity to be autonomous, right? If those three basic psychological needs are, are, are all supported, then well-being thrives. And you're better placed, an individual is better placed to, to support those three basic psychological needs themselves the later they can get, the, the further they can get into psychological development, right? Now, it's important to add that the, that the later stages of psychological development, whilst they're quite closely linked to, um, uh, to, to well-being, uh, there is a price, of getting there, right? Having your current meaning-making system challenged and changed is not a comfortable process. Um, so there, there, there is a cost, right? Um, later developmental stages aren't necessarily better. Sometimes just staying where you are, if it's working, is, is a good thing. Tell it, to, for a second, John, tell us more about meaning-making system. What do you mean when you say meaning-making system? 
So meaning-making is the idea that comes from um, a particular branch of, of psychology and, and was um, sort of originally developed by people like Jane Lovinger and Bill Torbert and Bob Keegan and Susan Cook-Greuter, um, who've done decades and decades of research now into meaning-making. Um, so the idea is that... Um, we all have um, organic computers in our heads, our brains, right? And we're all consuming data, information through the five senses and making sense of, of that information. Um, and, and there is a school of psychology and a, and, a, and a big sort of part of our Western culture that thinks that that's it. That's kind of psychologically, that's what we're doing. That's the view of the cognitive psychologists, right? The constructivist psychologists, people like Torber and Keegan and Cook Greuter, are saying there's another layer of, um, of psychological processing that is going on over and above that cognitive stuff that is us trying just to make sense of the world around us, right? Just literally trying to put it into a narrative that makes sense for us so that we know on what basis we can engage with the world. So somebody at a particular stage of um, development might, for instance, think of their organization as running much like a machine, much like hopefully a well-oiled machine, right, with processes and tools and... Inputs and outputs. And things. It's like, a, yeah, and inputs and outputs, and, it, and it's a machine, and, 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 it, and it kind of functions. Well, that's, that's how they're making their meaning at, at, at any one time. So... Um, that, that's that's what we mean by meaning making. I don't know if I put that very well, but hopefully that makes sense. Right? No, I, I get it. So we're really looking at upgrading the computer, upgrading the. You're you're really kind of hinting at taking that organic computer and giving it the uh, boost it needs in order to make that meaning system a little more. Would you say congruent with reality? Uh, up, upgrading the operating system. I think Aaron Dignan in uh, in a book he wrote. Um, the future of work, I think it was called, um, talked about um, the the um, organizational operating system. And we could think of our meaning-making system or our mindset or our psychology or our worldview, they're all names for a very similar thing, as being the operating system that helps us make sense of the world around us so that we can um, uh, work out how to act in a way that's, yeah, you're right, congruent with, with reality that gets the outcomes that we want. And really what we're talking about as we move through the developmental stages is exactly, as you said, upgrades to our own operating system. So, John, can you dive a little deeper into that operating system, into into how that all works? Sure, yeah. Um, so the, the kind of example that I start with, just to sort of make – Make, 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 make the point, really, um, is uh, a, an experiment that uh, a psychologist called um, Jean Piaget is very famous for doing um, at the beginning of last century, I think. And he, he worked with children and adolescents in their psychological development. And what he discovered is that a child of six months old, if you give them a ball, Say they do what children of six months old do with the ball. They put it in their mouth. They, you know, they suck it. That, that's kind of that's kind of it. That's kind of the idea. When they put that ball down, uh, Piaget covered it up with a blanket, um, 
And the child just carried on. The child was not upset. The child did not remove the blanket. The child just carried on, right? So Piaget concluded that the psychological development of the six-month-old child was, I think he called it um, impulsive. It, the child could only recognize things existed in the sense that the child could, could interact with the thing through its senses. So when the ball was covered up, it had gone, right? Get to about eight or nine months old, do the same thing with an eight or nine month old child, uh, and they'll cry if you take the ball away from them. Um, and if, you, if they put it down and you cover it up, they'll remove the blanket. So the child has now realized, has got to a stage of psychological development where they can start to differentiate between uh, themselves and something that is other, right? Object permanence, and yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Object permanence. So, and this is an ongoing process. Piaget showed us that people uh, up until their adolescence, you know, early 20s or whatever that is, um, continue this sort of process of taking things that they're subject to, that is things that hold them and, and making them object really in, um, in Keegan's language, which is probably not entirely appropriate. Anyway, what Lovinger started to investigate is how adult psychological development continued. And what um, she and, and, and various other people have, have demonstrated is that adults move through various observable psychological stages where they demonstrate um, a kind of common set of characteristics, right, depending on which stage you're in. Um, and that development can actually happen right up until the day you die, although it doesn't necessarily, okay? So there are stages, and we move through them at different stages of our life, and most people would recognize that, right? They would recognize that they're not quite the same person they uh, now as they were, say, 10 years ago. You're not the same person now as you were when you stood in that, that meeting three days into your new job and explained to them where they were all going wrong for so long. Right? <laughs> and th I'm, I'm sure a lot of people might argue with that assertion, but, but I'll, I'll let it slide today. Now, John, this doesn't have anything to do with age, does it? No, not necessarily. I mean, it takes time to happen, for sure. So people don't tend to hit the, uh, what are called the post-conventional stages until uh, mid, late 40s, early 50s, something like that. Um, but no, people can move through at their own rate, um, depending on the environment that they find themselves in, right? The key thing to remember here is that, as I mentioned before, later is not better, okay? If your meaning-making system, if the way you make meaning of the world suits the environment that you're in, if it, if it sufficiently explains the way things are working so you can operate and you're happy, good, great, right? So only later is our, uh, maybe as our understanding say, so in my 30s, I was quite, I'm ashamed to say, I suppose, dis despite everything, a bit materialistic, I was really drawn in by the status of a big job and a job title and lots of money and I bought a new car and all this kind of stuff. As I went through my 30s, I began to see quite clearly, began to experience, is a better word, that those things really had no impact on how happy I was and actually just consumed loads of, loads of money for no benefit whatsoever. So I got rid of them, right? And that kind of, that kind of upgrade in my meaning-making system, if you like, the status is really pretty meaningless at the end of the day, is something that comes with experience and age, right? Um, so it's not 
there's a loose relationship with age. There is no relationship with IQ. This isn't a question of being clever, though. That's for sure. No, I you know, and the IQ the IQ thing has its own set of pre- uh, pitfalls. It does, yeah, or cleverness, or whatever we might want to call it. Sure, sure, sure. So you mentioned environment, and till now we've mainly been talking about the person's internal process, right? We've been talking about that, but what does the envi- what role does the environment play and then how do we make a difference in that environment great question ryan so the relationship between our meaning making and the environment is very recursive the two things are heavily dependent upon each other um the people and the way we think, the people that make up society and the way we think makes the culture. But the culture also shapes the people, right? It also shapes how we think. So we know that we're all subject to cultural norms, many of which we haven't thought about. But those cultural norms also get created by people before they become norms, right? So it's very, very recursive. Now, for you can confidently say three or 400 years, the world we've lived in, let's say since Newton, um, has in the West anyway, has been perceived to be rather mechanistic, right? Newton himself said that with his very simple formula, he could predict anything in the universe, right? <laughs> so if you know the mass and you know the force, then you can predict whether the cricket ball or the cannonball or anything else is going to go, Right. Um, we see similar ideas in, in Adam Smith's visit to the pin factory where he found the artisan pin maker and discovered that if you broke the artisan pin maker's job up into 10 specialist jobs, you could get 100 times the output, right? The fact that in doing that, Adam Smith stopped the artisan pin maker having the pleasure of making the pin didn't really matter because he lifted them out of poverty in doing it, right? So when you view the world, when you make sense of the world as this sort of in this very me- mechanistic Newtonian sense, right, which makes its way via Rousseau, the history books tell us, into the French Enlightenment, is very, very much embedded in the way our science works. You can hear it on the BBC all the time, you know, the um, Faisal Islam, for example, saying uh, businesses like stability so that they can predict what's going to happen and plan. Okay, brilliant. That's all, you know, a nice, stable world in which we can predict things and we can plan we see that in the way you know we ran businesses tailorism and you know what ford put into practice in the last uh, century and so on very stable very nice brilliant so we come up with a psychology that matches that we come up with a psychology we all develop psychologies that to a large degree are also based on things being nice and predictable because then we can plan we put our money in our pension we retire when we're 65 and you know jobs are good right the problem is that as complexity is increasing in the environment that we're in, things are getting less stable. We can't predict and plan like we used to. So Michael Hammond um, coined the phrase, at least I think he did, um, of, instead of sort of a predict and plan leadership, we need a sense and respond leadership. Complex environments, to borrow a phrase from I think the U.S. Marines, uh, are volatile and uncertain and complex and amb- uh, ambiguous. Right. So so if you've got a mindset that wants to see that feels comfortable, surrounded by stable, predictable environments, and you now find yourself in a very unstable, unpredictable environment, anxiety levels rise. Okay, 
That might have something to do with, I suspect, it's an unproven connection with why only 9% in the Gallup World Poll, 9% of people say they're actively engaged in their jobs, right? Because they just they just don't work like they used to, and it makes people anxious, right? That's why stress levels are shooting through the roof. So if we can match that increase in complexity in the environment with an increased complexity in our psychology so that we become comfortable with this ever-changing environment that we find ourselves in, then maybe our anxiety levels will just even out and our lives will be a little bit happier, maybe. So if we are to go along a journey of upgrading our operating systems, we can be better prepared to deal with the situation when COVID-20 comes, yeah? Yeah. We can be better prepared to deal with uncertainty and ambiguity and volatility that seems to be a, a more of a characteristic of this postmodern world, the 21st century world, than it was the 20th century world, correct? Well, John, you've got a webinar coming up on April 22nd where you're going to be talking – the title of the webinar is Developing an Agile Mindset. So you're going to discuss this in further depth and give people some key methods to get towards this this growth. Can we're we're going to give away the secrets. Yeah, we can't give it yeah. all away, but but can you tell us a little bit about the, the sort of structure there and, and some of the things that we'll be going over? Yes. So specifically what we're talking about, so we're just winding the scope of what we're talking about a little bit to the world of work, because... What we're talking about is is applicable to society at large, right? But that's a that's a big subject. So if we wind the scope into the world of work, um, we are doing a number of things that aren't aren't my ideas, even our, our ideas uh, are ideas that are sort of out there in the in the world in academia at the cutting edge of how we shape organizations to be um, something's a little kinder to the human being right Edwards Deming said that um, W Edwards Deming said that the prevailing system of management is destroying our people there is a lot of evidence that control undermines autonomy which undermines well-being right so if we can shift our organizations from being ones that rely on control to ones that allow people to be autonomous and by autonomous i don't mean completely independent i mean acting of their own volition right um uh then well-being ought to increase and this is important but we can't just let go of the levers of control this is not desirable and not sensible control in many parts of the agile world i often think that control is really it's really a bad word um and we shouldn't be engaging in it in it at all and, and i don't think that's the case right control is part of our society we have laws we choose to obey the laws that's very very important we choose to pay our taxes and so on control and compliance is very important and when we're choosing to do it, it's okay, right? Even sometimes I can't go outside today because of the pandemic, right? I mean, I'm not overjoyed about that, but I'll do it, right? Because the government tell me to do it and we want to keep everybody safe, right? So control and compliance aren't bad things. But if we want organizations to become flatter, faster, more dynamic, we have to shift the mindset and the culture. So your question is, how do we do that, right? And the answer to that, 
Well, the answer to that that I would have given you a few months ago is this. Um, we need to build what we call uh, deliberately developmental envi um, environments, right, DDEs. Um, in a deliberately developmental environment, you remain focused on what the work is that you want. You know, you've got to get the right outcome, happy customers. Uh, you create value for your customers. Um, but we're also concerned with how we go about doing that work. So we don't want to go about it because we have a controller who dishes out instructions to people who exist in functional silos and then execute because that doesn't work because for lots and lots of reasons that I won't go into. We want to, and everybody's probably familiar with anyway, we want people to um, learn how to be autonomous, how to function um, as a, uh, it, well, cross-function, I guess, as, as a team. And that's a lot harder than we would imagine. Um, that's not a question of simply asking them to do it, to ask them to engage in it, right? What we need to do is take those that, that structure of control away gradually, and we have to replace it with something else. So we do this in something called action learning groups, uh, which are proving to be rather successful because in a deliberately developmental environment, you need to you need to have a couple of properties. People need to be working on a um, on a complex problem, on something that is that it requires more than one person to understand. Otherwise, people can just get on and do it. So there has to be an interpersonal nature. People have to collaborate to be able to find the answer. It has to be salient to their uh, working life, and it has to be meaningful. It has to be something people really care about. Mm -hmm. Now, I used to think, to be honest, that if we if we set up action learning groups and met those those uh, criteria somehow magically development would happen and yeah. what i discovered is that in some cases it does and in some cases it does not what we need to add into that is uh, we have to start to think about how we motivate people or how people motivate themselves we have to start to think about how do we tap into intrinsic motivation and if people aren't don't want to act, aren't going to act from their own intrinsic motivation, how do we create the environment in which they can take extrinsic motivations and integrate them into their own value system to the point where they're acting of their own volition, even though it's an extrinsic um, 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 direction, an extrinsic motivation? And guess what? like we planned this, Ryan, which we didn't, right? Um, that relies on having authentic dialogue, right? When people start to talk openly, when they start to be able to say, John, what you're trying to do here is crazy. I think it's crazy. It's not going to work. And you're not making any sense to me at all. When people start to feel comfortable enough to say that, then we can address that problem, right? When people aren't saying that, when they're just trying to go through the motions because they think they ought to, then we can't, we can't tap into that um, uh, autonomy in the same way. So the, the short answer to your question is we've got to get people engaging in authentic dialogue. That's how we unlock a deliberately developmental environment, push people, oh, I forgot this point, push people a little bit out of their comfort zone, but not so far outside of it that um, uh, it gets very stressful. That's nervous breakdown territory. <laughs> not so that they can't come back, right? Mm -hmm. Just a little bit out of their comfort zone with the right level of support to begin to unlock the change in the meaning-making system. Does that make sense? Absolutely. John, 
Thank you so much for joining me today on Team Titans. I think that your webinar on April 22nd is going to be a wonderful uh, learning experience for those who join us. And if you are listening to this and you want to join the webinar, the link will be provided in SoundCloud. John Turley, Senior Digital Transformation Consultant at Adaptivist, thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you so much, buddy.